0: <laughs> and then if you'd like to join, yes, yes, we'll. always go upstairs. My own wish say, to to Sadhguru Vaitham Sadhguru Vaitham Kapitanam Sarita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sadhana Vita Shri Vishakarna Vitashta Om Namo Bhagavateva Sudeva In Honolulu, Hawaii. And tomorrow is the day commemorating the anniversary, the lunar anniversary of the appearance of the Lord's Avatar of Mamande. So I thought today we would meditate on this incarnation of Krishna. And therefore, we're going to look at Canto 2, chapter 7, Scheduled Incarnations with Specific Functions. Text for Vishnur Vishnor Nuvirya, Gananam Ketam or Hatia, Yapartivan Yapi Kavir Vimane or Jansi, Chak Kamba Yaswa, Rahasak prishtam Triprishtam, Yasmatrisam Yam, Kampayanam. Translation, and purport by Prabhupada. Translation, who can describe completely the prowess of Vishnu? Even the scientists who might have counted the particles of the atoms of the universe cannot do so. Because it is he only who in his form, at moved his leg effortlessly beyond the topmost planet, Satyaloka, up to the neutral state of the three modes of material nature and all were moved. Purport. The highest scientific advancement of the material scientist is atomic energy. But the material scientist is not able to have an estimation of the particles of atoms contained in the whole universe. But even if one is able to count such atomic particles, or is able to roll up the sky like one's bedding, could you imagine that? Like sometimes we might use a sleeping bag. And you just, you know, roll out your bedding on the ground. So if you were so qualified that you could take the sky and roll it up like your bedding. Even then, Prabhupada says, one is unable to estimate the extent of the prowess and energy of the Supreme Lord. He is known as Chitagrama because once in his incarnation of Vamana, he expanded his leg beyond the highest planetary system, Satchaloka, and reached the neutral state of the modes of nature called the covering of the material world. There are seven layers of material coverings over the material sky, and the Lord could penetrate even those coverings. With his toe, he made a hole through which the water of the causal ocean filters into the material sky, and the current is known as the sacred Ganges, which purifies the planets of the three worlds. In other words, no one is equal to the transcendentally powerful Vishnu. He is omnipotent, and no one is equal to or greater than him." So we are all looking for that person, that place, that living entity, that object, where we can give our love and our devotion. And no one is a greater object of that devotion than God, specifically Sri Krishna. So we're giving our devotion, of course, to our own body. So most of us spend quite some time every day in caring for our body, thinking about our body, planning for our body, sheltering our body. And does our body reward our devotion? Does it? The amount of energy and time and care we yes, thought I mean, thought of. very limited. Very limitedly, isn't it? No matter how much time and care and thought and money and energy one puts into one's body, it still gets older, doesn't it? It still falls apart and eventually it will die. It doesn't matter how many, you know, organic lotions you put on it, or organic vitamins you eat, or how much jogging you do—that's something that one should take care. Of, but as an object of devotion, uh, the body will disappoint us, guaranteed, 100% guaranteed. I have a friend who sells computers. He says every time he sells computers, he tells people, "Your hard drive will fail, guaranteed." He said, "I can't tell you when or how, but I promise you it will fail at some point." So this body also, no matter how much devotion you give it, then what you speak of is go beyond the body. Someone says, all right, I will give all my love and devotion to my family. I'll be loyal to my family. I'll sacrifice for my family. I'll give up my own pleasures for the pleasure of my family. I'll love my family. Uh, Is the family a perfect object of love? Does your family always appreciate your sacrifices? Do they even notice your sacrifices? Rarely. Rarely Rarely do they even notice. Generally, the family members take your sacrifices for granted. Well, you're, you know, you're the husband, you're the mother, you're the daughter, of course you're supposed to sacrifice. Why should I even notice what to speak of? Thank you. Right? And the family members also. And they will die, they will go their own way, they will have their own life. So then one things let me give my love and my devotion to my country. My country. So that doesn't work so well either. People donate, people I give so much to their country that they're willing to fight in wars. Talk about a sacrifice. They're willing to risk losing their arm, their leg, their sanity. People spend so much, again, time and energy trying to have a perfect country. Does the country properly reciprocate our love? Is our country the proper object of our love? Does our country properly take care of everything we need? Does the the government in any country of the world, the government, can they guarantee your safety? No. No. Some places in London, when you go, there are signs the government has put up, be aware that pickpockets operate in this area. And you think, well, if you know that, why aren't you stopping it? What is the use of a government that just says, hey, take care of yourself here? Can can any government, I don't care what country you live in or where you go, can they say, we're going to protect you, we're going to take care of you, we're going to reciprocate with you? We may think the proper object of our love is an animal. People donate, you know, they give their inheritance to their dog or their cat, they spend all of their life loving some animal. Can the animal properly reciprocate love? No. In most cases, the animal's not even understanding the emotional dealings of the human. The human is is putting some human characteristics on the animal and imagining the animal has some motives that it doesn't really have. Just like dogs, you know, the, the wolves, they naturally follow their leader, the way the wolf pack is designed. So the wolves, uh, even there's just one alpha male and alpha female that breed, the whole wolf pack doesn't breed. So, in the domesticated dogs, they transfer that to the human, that they're my leader. But uh, sometimes the dog bites the master, sometimes the dog bites the master's children, and so forth. And again, even the most loyal dog will die and leave you bereft. One may think the proper object of my love is my career. I'll pour out my heart and my sacrifice, everything to my career. And is that a proper object of our love? Can anyone say my career has fully satisfied me and fully fulfilled me in every respect? Is it fully appreciated? Are we all able to make the kind of contribution that we would like? Uh, We may feel that way about a romantic partner. I'll give all my love to my um, sexual love, like, at least used to be that. Used to be the spouse. Who knows what it is today? And again, is that properly reciprocated? Is that person always going to be there for us? Even in the best case scenario, they're going to die. And maybe they'll run off and love somebody else. Maybe they won't be appreciative, and so forth and so on. Or one may give all one's love and one's affection to one's religion, and one's religious organization give all my love to the Catholic Church and I'm going to give all my love to this or that. And again, does that does that get properly reciprocated? Do the other members of the religious organization do they properly notice or appreciate one's sacrifice? Does it become simply another kind of club? One may give all of one's love and devotion to science. See your proper the, the Shastra talking about science. I will achieve everything through science to the point that I want to count the atoms of the universe, or as Prabhupada says here, he's so wonderful, to be able to roll up the sky like my bedding. So modern scientists, at least figuratively, they want to be able to roll up the sky like their bedding, isn't it? They want to be able to control material nature. If we devote ourselves to a pure truth and to science, then we will have a perfect life. So, when I was a little girl, this was the prevalent philosophy that through empiricism, through science, we were all going to have a perfect life. Vaccines and antibiotics were going to rid the world of disease, if any of you were my age. And you can understand that was, that was the philosophy. We've rid the world of smallpox and polio through vaccines, and now with antibiotics, we're going to cure all infections. And we really believed that. Through modern technology, everyone's going to live a life of comfort and ease. There's not going to be any hard physical labor anymore. We'll, We'll synthesize our food. There was this television show when I was a little kid, Star Trek, where they were traveling in the outer space and the computer synthesized food from chemicals. And everybody thought this was wonderful. Wow, we won't have to use agriculture anymore. We won't have to sweat out of the sun. We'll understand the workings of the atoms and roll up the sky like our bedding. We'll control material nature and in this way everybody will be happy. Was science and technology a proper object of our love? Did all of our devotion to science and technology reciprocate with us? The green revolutions done with pesticides and fertilizers, did they feed the world or did they poison the world? Did all these modern advances free us from disease or did it simply substitute one disease for another? Right now we're having so many diseases from the medicines used to cause the diseases, to cure the diseases. So where is the proper object of our love? We're searching and searching and searching. We have this inner urge to give ourselves fully, to love fully, to surrender fully, to say, I love you, I will do anything for you. I'll sacrifice anything, and we try to do this for so many places, our own body, our family, our romantic partner, our job, our career, our religion, our nation, the place where we work, empiricism, science, and we're always disappointed. And of course we just get angry and blame them, you know. But here, Bhagavatam is telling us where to propose our love. And very specifically, there are so many religions in the world that will say, love God. Like Jesus, when he was asked, what's the essence of your teaching? He said, to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind." But what does that mean? How do you do that? Who is this God that you should love? You're just going to leave. You end up trying to love a vague idea. So most religions in the world, most spiritual societies, when they talk about giving your love to God, they have the right idea, but it's so vague that people don't end up doing it. And instead of loving God, in the name of loving God, they end up loving their body or their family or their romantic partner or their society or this or that just like any materialist, but they call it loving God. They'll start saying, well, service to man is service to God. Building hospitals is service to God. There's nothing wrong with building hospitals. We need hospitals. But because they don't have a clear idea of God, they can't actually love Him. So one of the many wonderful and unique aspects of the Srimad Bhagavatam is it tells us who is God. Who is God very specifically? Beyond the light and the force and the energy and the knowledge and everything is in God and God is in everything. Who is he as a person? And when we read about, when we hear about, when we meditate on God as a person, we will naturally fall in love with him. We're looking to fall in love with someone who's amazing. We're hoping... My family is amazing, my romantic partner is amazing, my dog is amazing, science is amazing. We're hoping for that, but they're not really amazing. But Krishna is actually amazing. So here's one story of how Krishna is amazing. We're going to go through the basic story. It's a very long section in the Bhagavatam about Vamana, so we can't possibly tell all the details. This is just a summary. Uh, here in the second canto there's just this one verse if you really want to delve into the story tomorrow it's the appearance day of Mom I suggest you go to the Bhagavatam itself and read the story in depth so in the universe there's a constant competition between those who are in favor of the Lord and those who are against him and there's universal battles going on I mean frankly, there's so much fiction in our modern society about intergalactic battles. But there really are intergalactic battles, and there really are the demigods fighting the demons throughout space and time. So one of many such battles uh, was done by the leader of the demon, Bali. Bali's an interesting person. He's not really an atheist he's not really an evil person. He's not really an evil being. Uh, But for various reasons, he's the leader of the evil beings. He's the leader of those who are not only evil, but far more technologically advanced than we are on the earth at the present time. So he was waging a battle with the devas. The devas are the celestial beings who administer the universe under the authority of Krishna. So in other religions, they may be called angels or archangels or something like that. Their souls, just like we are, they have a different kind of being, ontologically speaking. Uh, But due to their great piety and their great situation and goodness, they receive this form. And most likely all of us have, in some lifetime, also been devas, And we may be so again, in fact. So it's, it's a particular life form that one can take. So the demons are fighting against the de- same with the demons. Those who are in demon bodies—that's just another body one can get in the universe. I and mean, we may also have had these higher, but higher in the sense of more technologically competent, stronger bodies like that, living on higher planets, uh, but a lower level of consciousness body. So when they're fighting, uh, Bali, it finds out that if he does the proper sacrifices, that he can take over the heavens without fight. Because there's often these, these battles going on. There's, there's descriptions of these epic battles in the Bhagavatam that are really cool. But anyway, he finds that he can take over the heavens without a fight by doing certain sacrifices, certain rituals. So he does that, and he becomes so powerful that when he enters into the planets of the devas, they see him and they just run. They say, we're not going to fight. And the devas assume different forms so they can get away secretly. They assume the form of white like, birds so they can just, you know, go to another planet without anyone noticing. Maybe someday somebody will make a movie on these stories from the bottom, to the bottom. I mean, that'd be nice. Instead of just fictional movies. So Bali establishes himself as the king of heaven. Now, this heaven is not the ultimate spiritual world. It's a material heaven. It's just like people talk about coming to Hawaii as paradise. But that doesn't mean that Hawaii is literally paradise. It's still part of the Earth planet, you follow? I mean, it's a nicer part of the Earth planet than say, you know, Denver or Boston. But it's not really heaven. People still get old here, people still die here. Courtesy of Captain Cook, we have mosquitoes here and so forth. So these heavenly planets, they're still within the material universe. They're not really the ultimate heaven. Anyway, Bali takes it over, which means he's now basically ruling the universe. He's now in charge of how everything's working, all the sun and the rain and the wind. He's the chief. becomes the chief of the Davis. But the problem is that he really wasn't supposed to be chief of the Davis. He Universal rules, he didn't break the universal rules, so to speak, but he kind of went in the back door. He didn't go through the whole process. So, Krishna is really interesting. Krishna runs the universe according to a set of rules, and anyone who follows those rules, even if they're an atheist, will get the result of those rules. And in fact, one of the main mentalities of, of the demons or the atheists is they try to figure out the rules of the universe so they can get what they want without thinking about the rule giver behind them. Something like what I did in school, where I tried to figure out, okay, what do I have to do so that the teachers will let me do what I want? What kind of grades do I have to get? Did anybody do this kind of thing? What kind of papers? Are I, how, what, what, what rules is, is the game here? What game's going on here? And I learned how to play the rules of the game. So I remember one of my teachers in high school who said you don't have to come to class anymore. She said you can come to class once every two weeks and take your exam and otherwise you can do what you want. So I wasn't really trying to please the teacher. I was just trying to game the system. You you follow? You understand? So a lot of lawyers do things like that. They study the law so they can find the, the way to get what they want without really following the intent of the law. So that's the mood of the demons. The mood of the demons is, how can I use the laws of the universe to get what I want? Whereas the laws of the universe are really meant to bring us to love of God. But they're thinking, how can I use the laws of the universe to be rich and famous and powerful? And there's a lot of so-called spiritual groups who do exactly that. How can we use the laws of the universe to become materially well-situated, yes? Is this correct? Even, you know, under the name of Hinduism, or Christianity, or Islam, or Judaism, you know, under the name of some major religion, or even they make up their own thing, you know, we're just going to have this spiritual group called whatever, whatever, and here's how the universe works, and if you just do this and this and this and push this button and push this button and that button, then you can be healthy and you can be happy and you can be prosperous. And and, and Krishna's thinking, oh, wait a minute, these rules were meant to help establish a loving relationship. They weren't meant for you to gain the system. You know, something like some... Uh, a person who realizes, well, okay, if I just say this thing, I can get women to do what I want and I can exploit them. I was reading once about this man who would take women out on dates to furniture stores. And he'd say, wouldn't this couch look nice in our living room? Right? On like the first date. And so the woman would think, oh, this man's really me. And then he could do with her whatever he wanted, and then he would abandon her. So he, he was understanding the female psychology so he could manipulate the woman he follow. So that's exactly what the demons are doing. They're, they're understanding how the universe works, not for the plan of the universe, but so they can use it for their own purposes. So that's what Bali did. He understood, okay, the way to take over heaven is i got to do this and this and this. But the idea is that the person who's running the heavenly planets is supposed to be somebody who has some love and affection for Krishna. Because the purpose of the universe is not just to fulfill our material desires. That's one of its purposes, undoubtedly. But the main purpose of this whole material world is so we can revive our love for Krishna. And only when devotees of the Lord are running things does that purpose get accomplished. When devotees of the Lord are as the administrators, then both purposes get accomplished. People live lives of material prosperity and peace, and they come to enlightenment. But if you get a demon in that position, they might be interested in peace and prosperity. Of course they might not. They might just be interested in their peace and prosperity. They might even be interested in the general peace and prosperity. But they're certainly not going to be interested in enlightenment. So Bali had come in the back door like this. And by tweaking the rules, he'd gotten himself into a position of power. Now, as I said, Bali in- himself is an interesting person because he, in heart is not a demon. But unfortunately, when he got in that position, all of his associates also got in a position of power, and they're actually demons. So the demigods went to Vishnu to complain, particularly the mother of Indra, Aditi. She was praying to the Lord, "No, please fix this situation. Please restore the kingdom of heaven to my sons. Now, interestingly, her husband, who's the father of both the demons and the demigods through Diti and Aditi, he appreciated that his wife wanted to restore Indra to heaven for the sake of the good of the universe, but he also saw that she was mixed that part of her motive was just family attachment. You know, it was kind of interesting. But he said, okay, this is the way you do it. This is the way you do it. You perform this particular ritual and this particular austerity, and that way Lord Vishnu will come and fulfill your desire. So she did that. And as an interesting aside, which we're not really going to get into, but some people talk about how that in a Vedic society that women were not engaged in spiritual activities. But we find that the Bhagavatam, there's very specific instructions for women like Aditi to engage in sacrifice and chanting of mantras and worship and basically priestly activities. So Aditi was engaged in these activities and Lord Vishnu personally appeared before her. When he did, she fell flat on the ground to offer dandavats, which is another aside. Some people say women well, we shouldn't offer dandavats, but there it is in the Bhagavatam that Aditi offered the full dandavats on the ground to Lord Vishnu. She was in great ecstasy. And Lord Vishnu says, I already knew what you wanted, and I am going to appear as your son, so I'll become the brother of Indra. And I will trick Bali into giving the heavens back to Indra. So because Krishna doesn't want to violate his own universal laws. So if a demon follows the universal laws, Krishna doesn't want to just come and say, okay, get out. If he's going to, to put things back in order, he wants to do it by following the universal laws. He wants people to have faith in the laws of the universe. He doesn't want people to think, well, I'll follow universal laws, and then God will just come and you know, do whatever he wants then there'd be chaos in the universe. So indeed, Krishna appears as the son of Aditi. He appears as this little brown, boy, Vamana, which means little dwarf, little boy. And all of the devas recognize that Vishnu has appeared, and they all come and give him various gifts. So he appears as a young boy, little student. He's, he's dressed in the traditional uniform. Here in America, we don't usually have uniforms for our students, but in most parts of the world, they do. Most parts of the world you can tell who's going to school by their dressed in their little uniforms. In Australia, their uniforms include a big hat for the sun. So Bam was in the traditional Vedic uniform for a student, which meant he had an umbrella. He didn't have a big Australian hat, he had an umbrella. And he was wearing a deer skin and so forth. So in this form he went as a Brahmana to one of the sacrifices that Bali was doing to keep the heavenly planets because once he got in that position he was told by his guru okay, you made it here but in order to stay here you have to do more sacrifices. So Ramadheim appears and when he appears everyone becomes charmed because God is the most attractive. So even the demons became charmed and all the priests of the sacrifice they felt overwhelming love for this little boy and it, I find it so wonderful that God appears like this as a little child, a little charming child. He doesn't always come as some big warrior. You know, the idea of the king of kings, and he doesn't always come like that, with a big crown and a whole retinue. I mean, we sometimes, but not always. Here he comes in a very unassuming way, very charming way. And he comes to the sacrifice of Bali, and Bali says, the king of heaven, and he understood that one of the laws of the universe is that priests and Brahmins and students should be given charity, they should be taken care of. Just like even in our modern society, we have the concept that we should pay for education, that the society in general should pay for education. So we do that in America pretty much exclusively through taxation which was also done in Vedic society. People paid taxes to the government, and the government then paid the educators. But in Vedic society, the students would also go vacant, and people would give charity directly to the students for their education. So Bali understood this principle that when a young child, a student, comes, that you're supposed to give them some charity so that they can have free education. But it went beyond that because he really fell in love with Ramana. This is because, at heart, Bali is not a demon. Bali is a devotee. And so he said to Ramana, whatever you want, you can have. Whatever you want, you can have. So this, of course, is one of the ways that spiritual life can begin when one says to the Lord, whatever you want, you can have. My dear Lord, from this day on, I am yours. I am surrendered to you, I am your servant. And indeed, Bali is the epitome or the exemplar of this total surrender. So he says to mamana whatever you want, you can have. Now Bali's guru, interestingly, although he engaged Bali in sacrifice for Vishnu because that's part of the universal laws, he didn't have any love for Vishnu. He was just following the rules to gain the system. And therefore, when Vishnu actually showed up and said, okay, give me everything, Bali's guru said, wait a minute. He said, I was doing these sacrifices just ritualistically for my own benefit. I didn't expect you to really show up. I mean, this can happen, even if you're so called religious. Oh, Krishna, I give you everything, whatever you want from me, I will do. And then Krishna stood in front of you and you saw him eye to eye. He said, okay, I want the next 24 hours, whatever I say you're going to do, right? What would you react? Yeah, would you say, yes! Or would you go, oh. oh. Now I'm in trouble. So Bali's guru went, oh. He said to Bali, this is Vishnu. he's going to take everything, he's going to take heaven away from you, he's going to take everything back. Don't give him anything. And she comments that what Bali's guru was thinking was, Bali's maintaining me. If Bali loses everything, I'm going to lose my job, and I won't have any way to eat. That was his calculation. So Bali gives a whole list of what he could offer Vamana. You can have this, 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 this. And, Bob and Dave says, "You know, I think I just want a little tiny piece of land. Just want a land, a piece of land that will be the measurement of three of my own steps." And he's just this little kid, right? So, a little kid comes in front of you. I just want as much land as I can cover in three steps. Well, what's that going to be? I mean, that's hardly going to be enough room for a chair, right? And then Bali Maharaj said said something which shows the reason. The ultimate reason why Krishna is doing this to him. You know, superficially, Krishna is doing it to restore the heavens to the devas, but really, Krishna is doing this to help out his devotee Bali, who got kind of attached. Bali says to Mom and Dave, Oh, you foolish child, why are you asking me for something so small? I run the universe, Bali says. <clears throat> He said, you should ask me for something so great that you'll never have to ask anybody for anything ever afterwards. Uh-oh. What happened to Baal? He'd become? Proud. Who can make such a statement? Only. Oh only God can say, I will give you something so great that you'll never have to ask anybody for anything else, ever. Who else can make such a statement? Can anyone else make such a statement? But Bobby made such a statement. And Bam was like, okay, we got to fix this. So Bam and then said, now, if a person can't be satisfied with a little, they're not going to be satisfied with anything. He said, if I wasn't satisfied with a little piece of land, I wouldn't be satisfied with owning a whole planet. So he was indirectly preaching to Bali and saying, your desires have gotten out of control. Then Bali said, okay. Bali didn't get it at that point. He didn't get it until Monday was saying to him, your desires are out of control. You should just be satisfied with what you need. Bali still had the mood that I am the giver. See, he wasn't giving to mom and dad yet like this. He was giving to mom and dad like this. You know, sometimes we give like that. We say, "I'm going to serve the devotees." My apologies for those of you who can't see me. We're going to serve the devotees. We're gonna, you know. But we have this mood that I am the giver. I am the beneficent one. I am the benefactor. And out of my mercy. I am giving you something. Instead, I am a little servant and I'm humbly offering what I have. So, Bali was not in the mood at this point of I'm the humble servant offering what I have. He was in the mood that I am the chief of the universe giving out of my mercy to this little boy. And Baudelaide was like, not good. So then Sukhacharya says, I curse you, Bali's guru said I curse you, Bali. I told you not to give anything to him. You didn't listen to me. You should have taken back your word because I already gave my word. Sukhacharya says, you know, there's times you can lie and this is one of those times you can lie to protect your property. You should have lied and said, oh, I really didn't want to give you anything. I curse you to lose all your opulence. Really foolish guy, because His whole reason for not wanting to give to Vamana was that Bali would lose all his opulence and not be able to maintain him, and the super-chari person would lose all his opulence anyway. Now what's really interesting, kind of the little backstory here, is that Bali had been able to conquer the heavens by pleasing his guru, and he needed to get the displeasure of his guru in order to lose the heavens. That was the real law that was going on. The real law wasn't the number of sacrifices Bali had done. The real law was if you please a great soul, you can get anything, and if you displease a great soul, you lose anything. So, Vamadeva tricked Bali into displeasing his guru. All right. Then Ivana starts changing from a little boy into this huge form where the earth was his foot. And the upper limits of the sky was his hair and his eyes were the sun and moon. And his body encompassed the whole universe. Then he took one step and another step. And by the time he'd taken the second step, as described here, with his little toe, he pierced through the coverings of the universe. The coverings of the universe are much thicker than the, than the diameter of the universe. There's a covering of solid matter and liquid matter, radiant energy, gaseous matter, ether. There's a covering of mind and intelligence of ego. And there's a covering of undifferentiated material nature. And each is 10 times thicker than the one before. So how could, with your toe could you pierce through all of them? Imagine how big his toe must be. And on the other side is spiritual water called the causal ocean, which then came through the coverings and went on different planets, including this one, the Ganges River. And then Robin said, okay, I took two steps. In those two steps, I've covered everything in this entire universe. But you promised me three. You're a liar. You're a cheater. You can't fulfill your word. Because Robin was also very proud. I keep my promises. I own the universe, and I keep my promises. And Baba is saying, wait a minute, you thought you owned everything, but you didn't even own enough to give me three cents. You only owned enough to give me two, and you couldn't even keep your promise. So what was Baba doing to Bali? He was cutting down his pride. Now Bali, because at heart he was a devotee, he was very grateful that his pride was cut down. And even Mama then really humiliated him. He arrested him. He said, you're a liar and a cheater. You broke your promise. And Raleigh accepted. He didn't fight. He didn't try to to defend his ego. He accepted. Yes, I was a fool. And finally, he says, my dear Lord, I think I have a place for your third step. He said one can say that the owner is different from that which is owned. So, although I owned the universe, your covering of the universe did not include me, the owner. And therefore, there's still one place that you haven't claimed. You haven't claimed me. Now, please put your third step on my head. So, this is the wonderful story of the Lord as Vamana. And can we not fall in love with such a Lord? He's so sweet and he's so clever and he's mischievous and and tricky and wonderful. He's great, he's powerful, he's huge and yet he's tiny, he's lovable, he's awe-inspiring. He's everything that we're looking for in where we should repose our love. And when we repose our love in him, it will be fully reciprocated. Bali was, ended up being given another heavenly kingdom in another region of the universe and later was made indeed the king of the main heaven. His desi- even his material desires were fulfilled beyond estimation and he achieved not only enlightenment but he achieved full unlimited ecstasy in love of God. So, there are so many wonderful stories of the unlimited incarnations of Krishna. And each story, as we read them, as we hear them, as we meditate on them, we should come to think yes, that's the person to whom I want to give my love. That's the person to whom I want to give my loyalty, to whom I want to sacrifice everything, and who I know will actually reciprocate. So, I think now we have RT. Yes? Oh, you're late. Okay. I was being I was being very good to finish exactly at six thirty. I was trained like that, in school. So, but you're late. Also, we're going to have a, a general discussion time upstairs. I think at what seven fifteen? Yes. Yeah, right after the Ashura eight prayers. Right after the same thing. Yeah, those that want to come from the line, get her place of prashadom I mean, And then take your plate up to Brooklyn's room. Okay, we'll have Prasadam up there and we can have like a general discussion up there. But anything anyone now wants to discuss? So what happened when the, when Bono's toe pierced all the coverage of the universe and the, all these calls of water started to come down that that could have caused great Great devastations. What what happened? Oh, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. So the Ganges, of course, it first went to the higher planets. And parts of that water are carried through the universe by the demigods and spaceships. And those waters were going to come to the Earth planet. Actually, they they were going to come to the Earth planet by the prayers of Bhagavad Gita. When they were going to come to the Earth planet, there was a fear that they would damage the Earth. So Bhairosh Shiva, to carry those waters on his head and break the force of their fall. But that's all. That's another half an hour. I don't think you're going to be that late with the RTN. Yeah. So what happened when he put his uh, third step on Bali's head? When I was a kid, the story was was pushed down. Yes, yes. Well, see, I stopped because it was six through. Sorry, shirt things. Yeah, he pushed Bali down to the lower planets. But these are subterranean heavenly planets. They're not... They're, they're described in the Bhagavatam as being more opulent than Indra's heaven. And they were really the suitable places for demons. Although Bali's not a demon. He had all of his demon associates. And Indra's heaven wasn't the right place for them. It wasn't where they belonged. They were really out of their element. In the subterranean heavenly planets, the demons get to enjoy opulences greater than that of Indra, but they don't have any universal control. They can't bother anybody. Yeah, the story goes, the, the festival of Deepali, uh, he supposedly visits once a year uh, to another, and uh, people welcome him. Bali? Yeah, but oh. the Deep the light festival.
1: Oh, that's it. That's it. Symbolic. Star, I think symbolic.
0: Of, uh, he, he blessed, apparently, I don't know, I think remember that. He, I think he blessed. Vishnu blessed him that, Krishna blessed him that. Uh, blessed him that uh, at least you, you, once a year, you get a lot of respects. You know, that, you know? Oh, that's interesting.
1: But Vamadev stays there
0: with Bali. And there is one Manumantar cycle where Bali becomes the actual Indra, where he takes the post of Indra. It's just basically, Vamadev said, you know, you, you, um, as they say in the UK, you jumped the queue. You say, you want to go upstairs and you can go to the front of the line to get your plates? Mm -hmm. I wonder if somebody will go to the front of the line to get their plates and never go upstairs. So, you know, Maras basically went to the front of the line. It wasn't his turn to be injured, and he he went out of turn. Vamadev says, you know, you'll get a turn to be injured, but not right now. Let this injured finish his turn and another one of the to be Indra. And for now, you can enjoy your later arguments in the subterranean planets. Anyone else? Can you speak a little bit about the significance of the foot on the head? The significance of the foot on the head? Yeah. Like What happens when Krishna's foot goes on his head? Oh, that's nice. Would you like to Krishna's foot on your head? <laughs> Actually, Krishna's. Uh, see, all of Krishna's body. All of Krishna's senses, we perform the actions of any of the senses. You know, for our body, really, no part of our body is very nice. Really. I mean, if you, like, popped out your eyeballs and put them on a plate, you go, <laughs> One of the nicest parts of our bodies are our eyes, you know, or our hair. Especially the ladies, you know, they're really into their hair and this and that. But if you just see a bunch of hair, you nobody know, just has a bunch of hair like that. So really, we don't have any part of our body that's very nice. Or just see a bunch of skin, you know. But particularly our feet, you know, we walk around on our feet and they get callous and they're dirty, and you know, if you put your and normally if you put your feet on someone, that's a sign of disrespect, isn't it? But with Krishna, every part of his body is wonderful, so Krishna puts his well, you can put your feet on his head. But with Krishna, when he puts his feet on your head, it's wonderful. It's a blessing. So it's a great blessing. The devotees even like to take the particles of dust that have fallen from Krishna's feet onto the ground, and just take that one part of the dust and put it on the head, and just be a So I think now we're going to have Arti. How do you guys know? Otherwise,